Will you pray with me? Father, open my mouth. Open our hearts as we open your word. May all of us be open to what you, by your spirit and through your word, have to say to us today on a topic that is very tough for us in today's church to deal with. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we were talking about the topic of being windows to the world, having lives that were so transparent that people could see through us and see Christ in us. And we talked about several issues with that, making sure that the inside of our lives are right with God, making sure that our windows are clean, meaning there's no sin in our life that would, that would obscure people's view, making sure our curtains are open, that we don't hide our testimony, and then being f- outward-facing toward the world so that people could see us for who we really are and how God is working in our lives. But there's a question that I think we have to ask ourselves related to that, and that's why I'm taking the time today to discuss a really, really tough issue. And that is, what do you do when your windows get dirty and it happens so subtly, so slowly, that you don't even recognize it? You don't even see it happening. What happens with that? And um, I think there's a lot of answers to that. Obviously, God begins working on us, and he begins by his spirit, by his word, uh, by friends and others to begin to convict us. But there's a a role that the church plays in that process that is something we don't like talking about very often, and that is the issue of church discipline. And immediately when you hear that phrase, I know, just like me, you're going, now wait a minute, I have had some experiences about that, or I've heard stories about that, and I don't think that's anything that we need to be a part of. So I want to spend some time this morning answering four questions. The first one is, what is biblical church discipline? Then we're going to look at what does the Bible say about church discipline, especially the New Testament. We're looking at the church and biblical church discipline. Thirdly, how have Christians in the past handled the question of church discipline? And then finally, when all is said and done, all the facts are out there, why should we practice church discipline in the local church family here at First Baptist Waterloo or whatever church family we're talking about? So I want to jump right into those four questions. We've got a lot of uh, material to cover. I don't want to rush, but I also want you to hear God speak to you uh, through what he's given me to share with you. First big question, what is biblical church discipline? Now you notice I put that word there, biblical, very, very um, intentionally. Because like I said a minute ago, every one of us, I'm sure, have either experienced or heard stories about people being you know, thrown out of the church, um, brought before the church, and, and verbally abused by church leaders, embarrassed, humiliated, those kind of things. Um, I got news for you. That is not biblical church discipline. That is pharisaical, um, hypocritical, judgmental action. It is not what the Bible talks about when it talks about biblical church discipline. And so before we get into the text, which will kind of show the truth of what I'm sharing with you, I want you to understand that really 
Church discipline is made up of two sections, two parts. The first part of church discipline is what we call formative discipline. Now, imagine in your mind a pie chart, okay? A very simple pie chart. And in that pie chart, there is a, a, a quarter section cut out, okay? And that pie chart is church discipline. 75% of biblical church discipline is what we call formative discipline. In other words, it's discipline that is designed to form us and shape us. It's what we call discipleship, okay? Notice the similar root word, disciple, discipleship, discipline. It's all designed to teach us how we should live, how we should act in order to reflect Christ in our lives. So whenever we talk about church discipline, we always tend to focus on the, 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 the negative, harsh, whatever aspect of it, and we forget that 75% of it is actually something that is designed to form us. And I got to tell you, if we would do that well, the other 25% would probably be a lot less than 25%. Because the other 25% is what we call corrective discipline. And that is when we see a person whose windows begin to get dirty and because the formative discipline has either not been accepted by them or they just don't recognize they've been deceived, someone or somebody has to come into that person's life and help shine some light into that situation to help bring correction. Now, one thing I hope you notice immediately is nowhere do you see the word punitive. There is no place for some type of punishment by the church of a church member for them falling into sin. Church discipline is either formative, helping to form us into the image of Christ, or it is corrective to help get us back on track. So before we go any further with this, and I know that you're sitting there at the beacon and you're just going, okay, pastor, now where are you going to go with this? I want to make sure you understand that every time I use this phrase over the next 25 minutes about church discipline, what I am talking about is this two-pronged role of formative, and then when the formative is either not followed or a person falls into a sinful pattern, then corrective. One more thing before we go to the scripture. Next time in the spring, when we come back to these nine marks, we're going to spend all of our time on the formative side. Okay, what does it mean to do good church discipleship? How do we disciple ourselves so we can grow spiritually? So today, I'm going to use the time we have to talk about that 25% of the pie chart, that corrective part, so that you see that even that is or can be or should be uh, redemptive, compassionate, loving. So today, we're going to focus most of our attention on that 25%, and then. Let's see, this is February. In May, we'll come back and talk about the formative part, okay? So I don't want you to get the, get the just because I'm spending all the time on corrective today that you think, well, that must be the big piece of the pie. I just want to deal with that first because that's the hardest one to talk about, just to be honest with you. So with that being said, what does the Bible have to say about church discipline? Now, before we get into the text that I want us to read together, and we're just going to take about seven or eight passages read through them with just a comment or two so you see the broad way that the Bible talks about church discipline. Let me say something about the passage that was read just a minute ago from Hebrews chapter 12. We're not going to go back to it. Let me just, just make a comment on it. The reason I put that reading at the beginning uh, before we even got to this part of the, of the service 
was to help us understand that all spiritual discipline starts with God. God, like a loving father, teaches us the way that we should go, right? Your dad, a mom, parent, grandparent, you know that one of the most important roles you have in the life of your children is to teach them first the right way to do, the things they should do, the things that they shouldn't do. That's formative. And then when they fall away, you helps them to see that and bring them back into line. Well, that's what God does with us. That's why he says in that passage, you know, he says, you don't remember how much it means for you to be corrected. He says in verse 5, and you don't have to turn there, let me just read it to you. You have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not take the Lord's discipline lightly or faint when you are reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and punishes every son he receives. And he goes on and talks about what God does in that situation. So, the foundation of anything we do in the church should be what does God do with his children? And how does he use us as a body to help do the work that he is doing in the life of believers. So the first place we go is probably the most famous passage straight from the lips of Jesus in Matthew chapter 18. Jesus is talking in Matthew 18 about relationships between believers. And in that passage, he makes the following statement. Matthew chapter 18, beginning at verse 15, this is what Jesus says. If your brother sins, and some translations say sins against you, some don't, If your brother sins, go and rebuke him in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if he won't listen, take one or two more people with you, so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact can be established. If he pays no attention to them, tell the church. But if he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be like an unbeliever and a tax collector to you. I assure you, whatever you bind on earth is already bound in heaven, And whatever you loose on earth is already loosed in heaven. Now, let me just say, this is the first step in any corrective discipline. You see a brother or a sister in the church fall into a sinful pattern. And the first thing you do is you go to them privately because you have a relationship with them, because they trust you, you are a friend, a brother, a sister in Christ, and you lovingly and carefully and compassionately Say, hey, I just want to make sure you see what's going on in your life. Now, I don't want to play with numbers. Most of these I'm just making up as I go along. But if we say that corrective discipline is 25% of all discipline, then I'm telling you, 90% of that 25% should be covered one-on-one between us and our brothers and sisters in Christ. And if we would be courageous enough, no, if we would be loving enough to go to a brother or sister when we see them beginning to slip away, I would literally believe that 90% of those issues would be resolved. So that's where Jesus says to start. He does say, if they won't listen to you, take a couple more friends of theirs. And the three or four of you, go out and have lunch together and talk to this person and encourage them to see the error of their ways. If that doesn't work, tell the church. Why? So the church can be praying for them and encouraging them. Every time they turn around, a brother or sister from the church is saying, why why are you letting this ruin your life? Why is this root of bitterness? Why is this whatever it is creeping into your life? If they won't even listen, then help them to see that they're following the path of someone that's not a believer. And we'll get to that part in just a minute. But I just wanted you to understand, it all starts with one-on-one. 
Now, Paul goes on from there. So we're going to spend the, most of the rest of our time in Paul's letters. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we have a very famous situation. I'm not going to read the whole passage to you. It's on the screen. You should be able to see it. But Paul is talking with the Corinthian church about a person in their church who is involved in sexual immorality. And it would appear that the church in Corinth did not understand Christian freedom. Rather than them coming to that person and confronting them lovingly with the issue, what they were doing was they were actually saying, hey, you know what? We're not even going to mess with this. We're just not going to bother with this. He, he says um, in verse 2 of chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, he says, and you are inflated with pride instead of filled with grief so that he who has committed this act may be removed from your congregation. You see, this is a person who had been deceived into thinking that having an intimate relationship with his stepmother, his father's wife, didn't call it her mother, well, I don't think it was her biological mother, but with her stepmother, he thought that was okay. And the church, because they did not come to him and correct him, he was falling further and further and further into sin. So in verse 4, he says, when you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus with my spirit and with the power of the Lord Jesus, turn that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh what purpose? So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So you see, Paul, right from the get-go, says the reason we do any kind of corrective discipline as a church family is so this person can be saved. Not saved from being lost versus being a believer, but saved from the consequences of their sinful actions and decisions. If you flip over to Galatians chapter 6, you have kind of the opposite. 1 Corinthians is a long discussion, 11 verses. And then you get to Galatians chapter 6, and he just almost in passing makes a comment. Brothers, if someone is caught in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual should, look at the word he uses, should restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so that you also won't be tempted. You see, Paul tells them right away not only what they should do, but the spirit in which they should do it. You do that carefully to restore the person and be careful that you have a gentle spirit so that you don't also become tempted. All right? From Galatians, we go to Thessalonians. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul talks about people who are beginning to slip away and in verse 6, he says, We command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to keep away from every brother who walks irresponsibly and not according to the tradition received from us. For you yourselves know how you must imitate us. We were not irresponsible among you. We did not eat anyone's food free of charge. Instead, we labored and struggled, working night and day, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. So he goes on and describes what they were doing, how they worked. It was obvious there were people in the church who were not doing anything to help themselves and yet relying on the church to provide everything they needed. So in verse 12, he says, Now we command and exhort such people by the Lord Jesus Christ, that quietly working they may eat their own food. Brothers, do not grow weary in well-doing. And if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take note of that person. Don't associate with him. Why? So that he would be ashamed. Yet don't treat him, look at this, don't treat him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Do you see? Again and again and again it comes back to, now look, don't be harsh with this. Don't be mean-spirited with this. You treat this person as a friend, as a brother. Warn him with love. Now, these were people who were just leeching off of the church. And Paul says, that is not the way you're supposed to live. So go to him 
And if he won't listen to you, just cut off his food supply. Stay away from him. And then he'll realize the error of his ways. But do it as a brother, not like someone who's your enemy. Now, the last three passages come from what we call the pastoral letters. First and Second Timothy and Titus. These are letters that were written to pastors. And so Paul is speaking pastor to pastor about what goes on in their churches. So in Second Thess- uh, excuse me, in First Timothy chapter one, verse twenty. Actually, I'm going to just read the last part of 19. It's not on the screen, but he's talking about how some people have rejected faith and a good conscience and have suffered the shipwreck of their faith. And then in verse 20, he gives two examples. Hymenaeus and Alexander are among them, and I have delivered them to Satan so that, he may, so that they may be taught not to blaspheme. In other words, Paul says, I have prayed that God's hand of protection would be lifted off of them so they would see the consequences of their actions redemptive, helpful. Later on in 2 Timothy, in chapter 5, or excuse me, 1 Timothy, in chapter 5, he says this in verses 19 and 20 about leaders. What happens when a leader falls into sin? Don't accept an accusation against an elder unless it is supported by two or three witnesses. Remember, elder is just another word for pastor. So don't accept an accusation just unless it is supported by two or three witnesses. But if it is, I'll put in parentheses, then publicly rebuke those who sin so that the rest will also be afraid. You see, for those of us who are in leadership positions, even though our sins may be semi-private in the sense of it didn't happen at church or against the church, because we are to be role models, we need to be brought before the church. We, not the average member, not the person in the pew, but we as pastors are the ones that should stand before the churches publicly to confess our sins when we've sinned against the Lord. And finally, the last passage is in Titus chapter 3. In Titus 3, verses 9 to 11, Paul says this, avoid foolish debates, genealogies, quarrels, disputes about the law. They are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a divisive person after a first and second warning, knowing that such a person is perverted. That doesn't mean sexually perverted. It means their, their thinking is twisted. Their thinking is not straight. And sins being self-condemned. So, I hope with that flyover, you recognize the fact that throughout the New Testament, church discipline is discussed very openly. How do you deal with a believer who falls into sin? How do you deal with a believer who's doing something that is obviously not following the formative discipline they have been taught? They need to be dealt with lovingly, but firmly. So that brings me to the third question, which is, how has the church in the past dealt with this? We know that church discipline is almost never practiced in the church today in the evangelical church today. And when it is, it's done in ways that are usually not very helpful. But how was it done in the past? And I just want to just put four words in front of you. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on them, just to tell you. Number one, it was consistent. In other words, no matter who the person was, no matter what position they held in the life of the church, the discipline in the early church and throughout the first centuries of the church until probably 100, 150 years ago, and even more so in the last probably 70 years or so, was consistent. If a person fell into sin, someone would go to them. If they didn't listen to them, they would take two or three other people, talk to them. If they didn't listen to those two or three people, they would share it with the church so the church could try to talk with them. Remember, this was the days when most churches were fairly fairly small, and it would be very, everybody knew each other, and they were able to lovingly encourage one another to come back into line. Secondly, it was done faithfully. I found a wonderful quote from a church document in the 19th century, in the 1800s, 
where it said that the two pillars of every godly pastor's role in the life of his church, in other words, what should a good pastor as the shepherd of his congregation, what should he do? Number one, he should faithfully preach God's word without fear. And secondly, he should lovingly discipline his flock when they fall into sin. In other words, for the first 1,800 years of the church's life, the primary role of a pastor was to preach the word, number one, and secondly, to discipline lovingly and compassionately his church members when he saw them fall away. Why? Because he was held accountable before God for how they lived their lives. Thirdly, it was done lovingly, compassionately. It was done with a desire to see the person repent and come back into full fellowship. It was not designed to be a punishment. It was not punitive. It was not some kind of a penal penalty-oriented thing. It was always done compassionately. And along with that, fourthly, it was always done redemptively with the idea of redeeming that person, restoring that person. Sometimes a person was just absolutely unrepentant. They said, I don't think I'm doing anything wrong, and I'm not going to change. And then it was the responsibility of the church to say, if you're going contrary to what God's word teaches and what we believe as brothers and sisters in Christ, then we cannot see that you are in fellowship with us, but we want you to know that we're praying that God will open your eyes to see. It was always designed with redemption. Well, then that brings me to the last question. Okay, we know what the Bible says. We know that that discipline is 75% formative, which we'll talk about in May, 25% corrective. We know the Bible says it should start with individuals and then small groups and then only go to the church if it's absolutely necessary, and it should always be done with love and redemption, and that's the way it was done in the past. It was seen as a major role in the life of the church to hold one another accountable, but why should we do it today? Number one, because it is for the good of the person being disciplined. You see, if a person begins to fall into sin and no one says anything, what does that say to the person? Well, I guess it's okay. I guess it's all right. I can do whatever I want. I'm not going to be held accountable. Remember when your child was little and they wanted to go to the toy store, but you wanted to go buy them a new pair of pants? And they would lay on the floor in the middle of them all and stomp and scream and cry. And just to get them to shut up, you gave in to them. Something in their head went click, click, click. Ah, this works. And the same thing happens. If a person falls into sin and there's no one there to lovingly and redemptively confront them with that sin, they go, I guess it must be okay. I don't guess anybody really cares. And they will fall deeper and deeper and deeper into sin. And we will have failed in the role that God wants to use in correcting that person in the sin of their life. Number two, it is good of other Christians. It's good for other Christians. In other words, when we see that as a church family, we're serious about living godly lives, and we love each other enough that we're willing to go out on a limb and lovingly confront one another when we see ourselves fall into sin, then we go, wow, so that means if I fall into sin, somebody's going to be knocking on my door. I, don't, I better be aware of that. I better be ready for that. And so it teaches us about love. It teaches us how we then can go and lovingly confront someone when we see them fall into sin. And it also reminds us that when we fall into sin, someone's going to be coming to confront us as well. Thirdly, it's for the health of the church as a whole. Now, what do I mean by that? We all know that when sin comes into a church, it creates discord. 
It can be a big sin that's being hidden. Or it can just be a little sin, gossip or backbiting or speaking negatively about brothers or sisters in Christ or speaking negatively of the leadership. It just creates discord within the whole church family. And so when that is dealt with in a loving and redemptive and consistent way, it brings about the health of the whole church. And this is the thing I want to make sure you understand. I don't want you to get the impression that some other discipline is like the main work of the church. It's not. Discipline is no more a main part of the church than medicine is the main part of your health. You only use medicine when your health is bad. 90% of the time, you're good and healthy, and you go on about your business, and you don't even think about having to take medicine. But when your body begins to get sick, then medicine comes in to bring cures. And as long as the church is functioning well, church discipline is almost a non-existent thing until something happens and sickness comes into the church, and then there needs to be correction. Number four, it is important for the witness of the church to the world. Now listen very carefully. Remember what biblical church discipline is. 90% of it is quiet, one-on-one, two-on-one, three-on-one. Every now and then the church body comes together to lovingly try to show someone and correct them and help them. And then if they still don't repent and they are separated off from the church and from fellowship, that means something to the lost world. You see, we have forgotten that no matter how much the world may have changed in the last few years, the lost world is still watching those of us who call ourselves Christians. And when they see that we live our lives the exact same way that the world does, and then we try to share the gospel with them, they're going, why? Why? I, you're no better than I am. You live your life just like I do. And remember last week we talked about the fact we know we're no better than a lost world. The difference in our lives is we're striving to live lives that are reflecting Christ's glory. A lost person is not. They don't care about God's glory. They don't care about a testimony. But when they see that we really do, they go, wow. Now that church, that group of believers, that group of Christians are not hypocritical. They don't preach one thing and live something else. They are consistent with what they say and how they live. And so it makes our evangelism much more effective. It's really interesting. I read a a statistic that in the 1880s, 1890s, early 1900s, Southern Baptist churches, on average, disciplined 2%, meaning in the sense of they put them out of the church for unrepentant sin, 2% of their congregations every year. That's a lot of people. But you know what? The churches grew at twice the rate of population. Because in those days, it was always done with tears and compassion and love. It wasn't harsh. It wasn't mean-spirited. But it was consistent. And it was faithful. And when people saw that, they went, wow. Number one, if you want to get into that church, you've got to make sure you're willing to live a godly life. And number two, they really live what they say they believe. And so it affects that, our testimony, our witness to the world. And then finally, fifthly, Why should we do it? I think more important than anything else we can say is because it reflects and brings glory to God. When you get a call from the school and your child is in the principal's office because they let out a string of words that you had no idea they even knew, 
Now get away from the selfish pride issue and just think about that as a parent. How does that make you feel as their parent? It breaks your heart. It breaks your heart because that's a reflection of your parenting. And so when we allow our brothers and sisters in Christ to go on in a life of sin that is contrary to what we know to be God's standards, that doesn't just reflect ill on our church. It reflects ill on God. You see, we're out there in the world to reflect his holiness. And when one of our brothers or sisters begins, usually probably just by deception and neglect, to allow their windows to become clouded and dirty, and we don't do anything to help them see that and get their windows clean again, that speaks to their father. It says something about him. I want to I close with a quote from the 1940s and share with you one last thought, and then we're going to pray. In 1944, a biblical theologian, very well known in his day, by the name of H.E. Dana, wrote these words. I remember this is 1944, right toward the end of the Second World War. This is what he said. Listen carefully. The abuse of discipline is reprehensible and destructive. We'd all say, you're absolutely right about that. But, he goes on, not more so than the abandonment of discipline. Two generations ago, the churches were applying discipline in a vindictive and arbitrary fashion that justly brought it into disrepute. But today, the pendulum has swung to the other extreme. Discipline is almost wholly neglected. It is time for a new generation of pastors to restore this important function of the church to its rightful significance in place church life 1944 and 70 years later we're still trying to find a way to restore biblical loving compassionate church discipline in the life of the church this is intricately related to our concept of church membership because if we're going to be members true members of a church body it means we have got to be willing to both hold our church accountable for how we work corporately and to hold each other accountable So you see church membership and church discipline go hand in hand. And so here's what I want to challenge us to do as we pray and as we close. There may be something the Lord has said to you about your own life. Maybe you recognize that your life has got some dirt on your windows. And God, just through thinking this, through thinking, boy, what if we practice kind of discipline in our church today? Somebody be probably knocking on my door. I need to get my life straight. Listen, now is the perfect time to do that. Strike while the iron is hot. Strike while the Holy Spirit is speaking to you. I'm looking straight through this camera lens into your face saying, don't leave the beacon with that issue unresolved. But the other thing I want us to pray about is how do we deal with this corporately? In other words, what are we willing to say as a church family that we are willing to do to lovingly, faithfully, compassionately, redemptively do to help each other if we start to fall into sin. One-on-one, two-on-one, three-on-one, and maybe if need be, the whole church family. 
coming around that person, not to judge them, not to beat them up, not to browbeat them, not to embarrass them, but to lovingly say, hey, please, please think about what you're doing. Think about how you're acting. Think about how you're hurting yourself and your family and your church and most of all, God's glory by the way you're acting. Don't do this. What would that say to our community about us as a church? What would it say about us as church members to one another? Let's commit ourselves as a church family to being just that. Let's pray together. Father, I think I've been more nervous about this topic than any of the nine marks that we've studied and that we're going to be studying as we get to the last two in the next few months. But Father, in some ways, it is just as important as biblical preaching and good evangelism and all those other things that we've talked about over these last, what, year now, or year and a half. Because, Father, part of being a good, solid, strong, healthy church is loving each other enough to go to one another in love. To go to our pastors, to go to our deacons, to go to each other, and, and lovingly, with, a, with an aim toward redemption. We're going to be talking about this issue, Father, for the next few weeks, in various settings. And I just pray that as we do that, we'll get questions answered. We'll continue to work with our natural fear of what church discipline can mean if it becomes ungodly, unbiblical. And I pray that you will continue by your word, by the history of your church, and by what we know about human nature. Help us to recognize that none of us has arrived yet. We are all being formed, and we all could stand some correction when we go astray. And that you have chosen to use your church as an instrument of your work as you correct us and form us and shape us in your image and likeness. So be with us. If there's some of us here that have individual issues, may we take care of those right now, even as we get ready to sing. May we confess those things, ask your forgiveness. If we need to go to someone and ask them to forgive us, that we'll do that without fear. And then as a corporate family, help us do the work that you would have for your glory, for the good of your kingdom.